You're listening to Slow Theology, Simple Faith for Chaotic Times, with A.J. Swoboda and E.J. Gupta. Welcome back. We are continuing to talk about slow creed, which is our way of talking about slow theology, thinking about things like the Apostles' Creed. In the last episode, we just introduced the conversation on belief. AJ uh, is here with me, I'm NJ, and we are meeting so many people who are wanting to get engaged with God, with the Bible, with the church, dip their toes in, and we both feel like starting to think about belief, starting to think about the great Christian tradition helps us get started, I think, in, in a real basic way. Today, we're going to just take baby steps into the creed by talking about the first part, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Um, AJ, I want to start with a little anecdote. I've used this before with people, and it's it's a little bit off-putting, but I really love it. So, one of my favorite celebrities, personalities, is Penn Jillette, who is part of Penn & Teller. I, I love the TV show Fool Us. Uh, which is a magician's thing. But Penn Gillette is actually a deep thinker. Um, and he kind of reminds me of Ricky Gervais, where he is kind of an armchair philosopher. Um, and like Ricky Gervais, Penn is an atheist. And there's this website called This I Believe. It's a great website, and it has personalities, celebrities, uh, public figures talk about their beliefs. And there's this nice kind of one-page statement by Pendulette. And I just want to read it out for everybody because I use this as a way of saying it's not only Christians that have beliefs and it's not only Christians who believe that beliefs matter. So AJ, I want to read this to you and then get your reaction. I have to do a little bit of editing because I don't want to t- spend 10 minutes reading this. So um, I'm just going to kind of read kind of the, the heart of it. Um, his, this I believe statement is this, I believe, I believe there is no God. Having taken that step, it informs every moment of my life. I'm not greedy. I have love, blue skies, rainbows, and Hallmark cards, and that has to be enough. It has to be enough, but it's everything in the world, and everything in the world is plenty for me. It seems just rude to beg the invisible for more. Just the love of my family that raised me and the family I'm raising now is enough that I I don't need heaven. I won the huge genetic lottery, and I get joy every day. Believing there's no God means I can't really be forgiven except by kindness and faulty memories. That's good. It makes me want to be more thoughtful. I have to try to treat people right the first time around. Believing there's no God stops me from being solipsistic. I can read ideas from all different people from all different cultures. Without God, we can agree on reality and I can keep learning where I'm wrong. We can all keep adjusting so that we can really communicate. I don't travel in circles where people say, I have faith. I believe this is my heart and nothing you can say or do can shake my faith. That's just long-winded religious way of saying, shut up, or another two words that the FCC likes less. But all obscenity is less insulting than how I was brought up and my imaginary friends mean more to me than anything you can ever say or do. So believing there is no God lets me be proven wrong, and that's always fun. It means I'm learning something. Believing there is no God means that suffering I've seen in my family and indeed all suffering in the world isn't caused by an omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent force that isn't bothered to help or is just testing us, but rather 
something that we all may be able to help others with in the future. No God means the possibility of less suffering in the future. Believing there is no God gives me more room for belief in family, people, love, truth, beauty, sex, jello, and all the other things I can prove and that make this life the best life I will ever have. AJ, I'm reading this and thinking, that sounds pretty good. Uh, He seems happy. Um, He's thought a lot about atheism. Um, Some people say humanism because atheism is the lack of something. Humanism is the belief in something, which is just, you know, what he calls reality. What's your reaction? So I, I, I'm just letting everybody know I didn't, I didn't read this to AJ ahead of time. So he's getting this kind of cold. So on the spot, AJ, what's your reaction to one of my favorite thinkers, Penn? By the way, I disagree completely with Penn, but one of my favorite thinkers, Penn Gillette. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's brilliant, and um, you you can tell. I mean, both in his witty tone and his creativity, he's a deep thinker, and. Um, anybody that's willing, frankly, anybody that's willing to go so far in our day and age to actually take a stake on a belief is remarkable and worthy of honor. And so, um, uh, to be honest, I, I have almost a deeper respect for uh, Penn's willingness to give language to his beliefs more than many people that would identify as Christians who are um, uh, unwilling to do the same. A, a few Amen. observations. Uh, one observation would be... Um, I'm struck that uh, that there is not the difference between belief and non-belief. Uh, if this is an ardent, honest thinker, uh, it is laden, it's filled with belief and faith. Uh, this is not the difference between faith and non-faith. This is a difference right. between faith and alternative faith. And yes. I wonder if that's probably true with m- most who would identify as either humanist or agnostic or whatnot, um, is, is that it's not the lack of faith or belief. It is just a uh, displaced faith in something else. Um, and the third thing that strikes me is um, a lot of the sort of sentiments that uh, Penn is outlining here work really, really, really well when you have an awesome life. And uh, I think when one experiences that's a good uh, observation and great families and, uh, and a life of um, tremendous uh, ease and and happiness. Um, no wonder one can love humanity. Um, I wonder what it would be like to have uh, a person uh, in sub-Saharan Africa write a similar, I believe, creed who doesn't have necessarily the same sort of um, uh, place of privilege in in their their existence. Uh, life isn't quite as happy. Maybe family isn't what one assumed. Or um, again, we could translate that to anybody who suffered tremendously. Uh, in in their life. My my point being, I think a lot of the things that Penn is saying there are belief statements by somebody who's got it pretty good, uh, and it and it makes good sense. But I I do I do happen to to think that that um, you know Jesus was onto something when he <laughs> said uh, that the affluent, the well off, the 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 rich, it's hard to enter the kingdom um, because when you have everything you want or need, uh, who would need God? Uh, and and obviously, God God is needed by those that need Him, and God is not needed by those that don't. What's your gut level response? Um, my my gut level response is, I do appreciate he's put a lot of thought into this. Um, 
I think in a sense, it comes across to me as resignation. Mm. Um, resignation in the sense that, um, oh, well, life has lots of crap. Let's just make the most of it. Let's yeah. make the most we can of it. Yep. And so there's a kind of simplicity to his approach, which is attractive, but also in some sense uninspiring. <laughs> mm. I think there's a simplicity here that's basically like just almost like Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes, where, um, you know, everything is meaningless. Yep. Um, the interesting thing is, number one, Ecclesiastes is in the Bible, so everything is meaningless <laughs> is a Christian statement, but it's not the only statement. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it doesn't seem like Penn has more to build on than I'm, lo- you know, looking for meaning, you know, just in myself and in my family and my neighbors. Honestly, I feel like my Portland neighbors. I love living in Portland. I don't feel like I'm better than anybody here, but I feel like this is probably the dominant way of thinking amongst the neighborhoods here in Portland is uh, there's no God. So just eat, drink and be merry and do good and be nice to people. I mean, that's the basic there. I I will say, you know, coming back to gut level reaction, what would I say to somebody if they say, what does Christianity offer? Um, I would say a big part of it is being part of something bigger than yourself. Um, being part of this, I mean, the language of, uh, I when I was in college, I was a part of Campus Crusade for Christ. And at that time, nobody questioned the word crusade, at least not in the circles I was in. Um, within five to ten years of my graduating college, they changed their name to Crew, C-R-U, which is funny because they want to get away from the word crusade, except when they say, why are you called crew? They can't really get around the fact that this is the first three letters <laughs> of the word crusade. Um, it'd be interesting if they changed it to C-R-E-W, which then could be, you know, some kind of analogy. Anyway, I, I hesitate to talk about Christian mission because it can come across as colonial or crusading and yet, this is really central to what made Christians unique. I'm writing a book right now called Strange Religion, which is about all the ways that Christians were kind of weird in the first century. And one of the most obvious ways is how evangelistic they were. People were not evangelistic for their religion in general in the ancient world. You weren't going door to door, handing out leaflets saying, have you found Jesus? Have you found, um, you know, Apollos or have you found, um, you know, ISIS, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't do that in the ancient world. You kind of had, you worship the great gods of Olympus and then you had your preferences, but these Christians were almost literally knocking on doors. (laughs) Um, They really wanted other people to join, to join the the team, but a team with a particular direction, um, there was this urgency that this has to take over the world. And I believe that most Christians in the first century were not wanting to colonialize the world. Uh, at their best, they believed that um, this Jesus person that they revere is gracious, generous, and wants everyone to have equality and happiness. Um, 
So I think what Penn is missing here is this sense of being a part of a great commission, a great mission that's going to change the world. The, the message he gives me, uh, Penn, in this, in this is he's not that interested in changing the world. He's interested in just living out a happy life with his family and, and doing good to his neighbors. That's great. But I think what pushes Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the church, um, is the idea that we want to make the, the world a better place, not just our neighborhood. Yeah. Starts with our neighborhood. There was a there was a, uh, a a Hebrew scholar by the name of Jeremiah Unterman who wrote a book a number of years ago, years ago called Justice for All. He's a uh, a brilliant comparative religious scholar. He looks at how uh, the Jews in in the ancient world functioned in uh, in their moment in time, kind of similar to what you were saying. Like, what made Jews weird in the ancient world? Like, what was the thing that made ancient Israel weird? And he uh, looks at all the sort of differences between uh, between ancient Israelites and and the the cultures around them. There's so many differences. For example, uh, the ancient uh, uh, ancient Jewish people practiced hospitality. In the ancient world, you didn't have an ethic around caring for strangers or uh, these sorts of things. Uh, another is the Sabbath, right? The Sabbath is unique to the ancient Jews. But there's one that was really unique that he, he points out uh, where he talks about how uh, ancient Jews were not just committed to ritual, but they were committed to ritual that was done in the right way ethical ritual. So for yeah. example, when you would bring your animal to the temple to sacrifice, there are all of these, you know, ethical commitments around treating the animal well and ethically and righteously. Don't, you know, don't drink the lifeblood of an animal, which has something to do, a lot of scholars think to Canaanite rites, where you would actually drain the animal, the blood of the animal while you ate it at the same time. It's mm-hmm. a very unethical, evil practice. But the Bible, you know, the, 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 the ancient scriptures commanded God's people not just to do ritual, but to do ritual the right way. And I think one of the unique things that the Apostles' Creed points out to us is the earliest Christians did not believe merely in belief. They didn't believe merely in faith. They believed in belief the right way, in faith the right way. And, um, you know, it is one thing to say you have faith in your family, you have faith in the universe, you have faith in your neighbor or in a good bottle of Merlot. Um, but the, the Christian witness says, we're not called to have faith in anything. We're called to have faith in the right things. And I, I, I feel, if I'm honest, I feel a little, a sense of compassion for somebody in Penn's position. Because um, when you don't have something outside of yourself to determine what those things are, then it's all on you. No wonder we're so anxious trying to self-determine what are what are good faith and, and bad faith choices. And so there is a sense of, of, you know, when you read the Apostles' Creed, it's so liberating you don't have to write it. You don't have to create it for yourself. You get to enter into it. It's a story that's already been told. That's helpful for me. So this word, but let's, okay. So Nijay, the word father, the word father, I believe in God, the father. Now, Freud, of course, a long time ago, argued that Christianity was merely a religion for people who had really, really bad dads. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically the idea that Christianity was uh, was a faith for people that had a deep, deep, deep daddy and mommy wound, and that Christianity is merely making up for uh, bad parental uh, decisions. Why is it important that we have the image of God the Father? Why did the earliest Christians believe the image of God the Father mattered so dearly? Why did that matter? This is a great question. I actually just had a student email me about two weeks ago with that exact question. You know, when we read, for example, the Lord's Prayer you know, this off-sighted 
text from the New Testament, you know, the sentiment of this email, which was one of my sharpest students, was, you know, can we substitute mother language? Can we use generic language? How central and, um, uh, you know, uneditable, immutable is this fatherly language? Um, that's a great question because it is dominant in the New Testament. It's present in the Old Testament. It's dominant in the New Testament. I do want to make a book recommendation, then I'll answer the question. One of my uh, favorite new books that just came out is by a scholar named Amy Peeler called mm-hmm. Women and the Gender of God. She actually gets into this question in, in a good amount of detail. But uh, the father language, why is it there? Um, you know, I think there are two or three reasons, and the third reason is the most important. One reason is in a patriarchal world, patriarchy means rule of the father. The father was seen as the dominant legal authority over the household. And so it kind of made sense to imagine God as a father, but it also reflected God as responsible for his people. There are there were a lot, you know, I've been studying Greco-Roman religion a lot for this book I'm writing, and people were terrified of offending the gods. And there are all kinds of stories of doing a ritual wrong and a God blasting you with fire or shooting rays of their eyes or a lightning bolt or whatever, all these things happening because you did something wrong. Um, I think part of the Jewish tradition is to see God the Father as a caring father, right? We all have experiences with relatives, mother or father or sibling that's going to shape how we look at those categories. But as we look at Israel and the relationship with God, the one thing, if you asked an Israelite or a Jew in the first century, tell me what your God is like. Mm. We would say, think we moderns would say things like God requires these laws. A Jew would say, let's go to the book of Exodus. The Lord is gracious, gracious mm. and compassionate. He brought us out of Egypt took us from slavery, adopted us into his family, made us one of his own, gave us the law as this guidance for our life, gave us a land that we can live in that's fertile and full of uh, you know, wonderful produce. That's number, number one. Uh, number two is a covenantal image. God making this covenant with his people saying, I'll be a father to you. You'll be like a son to me, which represents commitment. The third image, which is most important, and this is what I told my student, When we say our Father, either in the Creed or in the Lord's Prayer, we're actually not talking about some abstract deity in the sky. We're meant to be thinking about the Father of the Son, Jesus Christ. So as we construct or reconstruct an understanding of what Father means, we're meant to reconstruct that not according to my Father who lives in Ohio or your Father, A.J., We're meant to reconstruct it according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the image we get of the Father is one of care, love, grace, um, generosity, um, you know, this this image of intimacy. When you look at Jesus' prayer life, right, you get the sense of intimacy, closeness. Um, You know, growing up, AJ, I love my father dearly. If you're listening, Dad, love you. But he was busy. He was really busy. He worked 12 hours a day at least. And he worked half day Saturday. He took Sunday off because he had to. <laughs> Nobody else in his office wanted to work. He was a physician. And so my understanding of, of a father based on growing up was 
don't bother him because he's busy. Now, I know my dad would hate that I said that and he would protest that. But the reality is he does really important things. He's an eye surgeon. He saves people's eyes every day. And I would never fault him for that. But that can't help but shape how I see fatherhood. And I've tried to do something different uh, as a father, but I've had to do some repair work on my understanding of what it means to call God father. And the gospels have really shaped how I'm supposed to look at that. What about you, AJ? What has helped you think through what it means to call God father? Well, the, I remember when I was in seminary, I took a class on theology and I remember, I, I just didn't know this. This was new to me, but there, I didn't know up to this point that there is a huge scandal in the history of the church around calling God a father, particularly in, in the late modern period, right? In theology, is it appropriate to call God a he? Is it appropriate to call God a mm-hmm. father? And I didn't know, I didn't just, when I was new to seminary, I just didn't know this was a conversation. And like half the class was about the gender of God. I just was unaware um, and I remember that summer I was writing uh, I was writing a manuscript and came across a book by Madeline Lengel, who wrote A Wrinkle in Time. She, Wrinkle in Time. She wrote this little book called Walking on Water, which is her book on writing. And uh, this brilliant, you know, Christian thinker kind of gets really upset that we're obsessed with this conversation about if it's okay to call, call God a father. And she says uh, in that book, she says, well, what are we supposed to do? Call, call God an it? And she says, the minute you degender God and God is no longer described in fatherly terms in this kind of way, then we devolve into what she calls a vague androidism, the idea that yeah. we basically speak about God as a robot. And that is way worse than offending maybe any feelings we may have about a father. To say nothing of the fact that in the history of both biblical tradition, you have many images in the Bible as of God as a mother. You have God yes, as a mother absolutely. hen in the book of Isaiah. Uh, the book of Hosea describes God as a, a female, a, a mother uh, bear. Uh, you have you know imagery that's very, very clearly feminine, both in Paul's letters, where Paul talks about himself as a man uh, in, in terms that are traditional, you know, female stereotypes or female uh, roles in culture. But to say nothing of the fact that in the early church, one of their favorite images of God uh, that you see in the ancient paintings are is God as a breastfeeding mother. Uh, yeah. You have imagery of God, uh, and ben, ben Myers in his book on Apostles' Creed writes about this, a lot, a lot, a lot of imagery of God as a breastfeeding mom. Um, as a way of saying, you know, God is a father, but there are also dynamics of God that represent the motherly aspect of, of humanity. And so that, I, I don't know, I think I think what's important here is that God is spoken of in ways that make sense to us. And yeah. and that God and is personal not a robot, ways. Very highly personal ways. Hmm. And, okay, in conclusion, it may be true that Freud was right to a degree, that religion is something we lean on in a way to make up for what our parents did or did not do. I, I wouldn't disagree that we do that on, on level. But I would also say, take any counselor who spends time in an office with somebody going through a lot of difficulty in understanding their family of origin and read the Apostles' Creed. I had a counselor say to me once, if I was allowed to, I would read the Apostles' Creed in every single session because the message of the Apostles' Creed for a person with a really bad dad is incredible news. Yes. You, you have a father. You have a community. You have forgiveness. It, and again, you can't read the Apostles' Creed in most counseling offices. But if you could, read the Apostles' Creed through the lens of psychological healing. It's one of the most healing documents in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And it's important for people to know, we only have a few minutes left, but it's important for people to know, and I got this from Tom Wright, but that the Creed is not a replacement for the Bible. Because yeah. um, people will complain, oh, the Creed leaves out so much. 
And for example, the creed leaves out the entire teaching <laughs> of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. What it is, is the creed is um, taking a stand on issues that would have been controversial in the early church. Um, but what what I like to tell people is the creed is a series of hyperlinks to point you to scripture. Just so father is a hyperlink to read the gospels where you get fatherly and motherly imagery, right? And and the son, right? Jesus Christ is a link to give you imagery of son, but also of sacrifice and of a variety of other images. Um, you know, we only have a few minutes, AJ, but I, I know that listeners will want, and you're the theologian here, listeners will want to know how we process the issue of maker of heaven and earth. Mm. Um, because the creed affirms that God created the world. And yet I just went to a, you know, a seminar on the Oregon Museum of Science and Industry on, you know, the age of the earth and the stars and all of that. And, um, you know, many people out there are walking away from Christianity because they perceive that Christians, creedal Christians, reject science reject science of origins, reject science of what we call evolution, but really of origins of the world. So let me ask you, you know, we only have two or three minutes left, but can you give me a quick pitch on if I were to say, if I were to walk up to you, AJ, and say, I I, I can't be a Christian because I can't reject the science that I've learned about where the world has come from. Mm. So I can't confess the statement God maker of heaven and earth. How, how do you respond to that? Well, if I was to, if I was to say to somebody um, from the East to the West, uh, the, everybody knows what that would mean. That's, that's a way of saying everything. If I was to say the whole kit and caboodle, that would be a way of saying everything. So that, that yeah. phrase in the creed, you, I love that image of a hyperlink. Um, uh, our friend Tim Mackey always uses that imagery in the Bible that there's all these really important links between different ideas in the text. And when you click, double click on that image of maker of heaven and earth, you are immediately thrown into a group of people who know their Bibles very well. The very first line in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. The beginning yeah. of the Bible begins with that phrase, heavens and earth, in the same way the creed reads heavens and the earth. Well, that's a the, the phrase... Uh, <clears throat> heavens and earth is what we call a biblical merism, M-E-R-I-S-M, a merism, which yep. is a way of saying the whole kit and caboodle from east to west, up to down, everything. And the idea here is that everything that has been made has been handcrafted by a divine brilliance. Uh, it's not accidental. Uh, it didn't come from nowhere. It came out of the mind and heart and desires of God and that everything is made by God. He is the maker of heavens and the earth. In the, in the same way that Genesis 1 begins with, in the beginning God made the heavens and the earth. And in the same way John writes in his apocalypse at the end of the Bible, there was a new heavens and a new earth. It's a merism, a way of saying the whole thing will be me, be, be remade. Uh, you know, you and I both have the privilege of having a lot of students that disagree on the, the ways in which science and uh, evolutionary biology reflect on the world. My responsibility uh, as a Bible teacher is to only go as far as I see scripture going and to not go mm -hmm. beyond that. And as far as I can tell from this creed in Genesis 1 and 2, I do not see uh, any necessary commitment for me to have to um, believe in young earth creationism. And I sim simultaneously do not believe that this invites me to have to believe uh, in a 4.3 billion year old universe. I am invited 
to see the bumblebee, the sunset, and the rings around Saturn as handcrafted by a really good God who knew exactly what he was doing. And frankly, when I hold to that belief, it gives me a lot of freedom to be able able to hear what the scientist has to say and the Bible nerd at the same time. What I do need to do is hold firmly to the fact that the God of the universe knew what he was doing when he made everything. I love that. So I'm going to give you like a last 30 seconds here to to answer my question, to wrap up this conversation. Um, I guess the, the question we're coming back to is, what difference does it make in my life, in my whole life, whether or not I believe God is creator? What what actual difference? Not, not getting in the details of where did this star come from, but the yeah. whole concept of God as creator. What actual difference does it make? Give us the last word on that. Yeah. Huge, huge. Um, a number of years ago, a friend of mine uh, discovered after uh, doing some work, family work, uh, family of origin work, found out that she was, uh, and she didn't know this, but she had found out that she was uh, the product of uh, of a rape. And uh, mm. this experience of discovering her origin wow. uh, destroyed her first, but secondly, sent her into an existential tailspin. And here's why. Uh, She began to believe the idea that she was unwanted and not known and not needed. For her, for her, the healing came in knowing, even in the horror of her origin story, that she had a maker. And in a world that that would that that may or may not hold to the idea that she was either an accident or she was the product of uh, a horrific assault. What she has in the Apostles' Creed and what she has in our storyline of the Bible is an undying witness that no matter where she came from, she is wanted, mm. she is known, and she is seen. Take that from her, and you rob her of her life. Yeah. Wow, that's powerful. Thanks, AJ. This is this has been a really fruitful conversation. Yeah, thank you, Nijay.